You were listening to KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah, 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. Altogether, we make up Mendocino County Public Broadcasting member-supported community radio. We also stream live on the web at kzyx.org. Support for KZYX comes from our members and Redwood Roofers, license number 957548. Redwood Roofers has been roofing the Mendocino Coast for 49 years and offers all roofing needs. More information at redwoodroofers.com and 707-937-1700. Mind if I sit down, everything you pray for, everything you play Hi and welcome to Be More Now. My name is Blake Moore and tonight I'm interviewing Diane Frank, editor of Fog and Light, San Francisco through the eyes of poets who live here. The show will be a mix of poetry and discussion with a few of the poet contributors reading their poems. Poets include Dan Langton, Angie Minkin, Catherine Goldman, Gail Newman, Alejandro Merguia, and Marianne Betterly all reading about their love for San Francisco and its wonderful sense of place. I'm going to start tonight's show with a brief story and poem from Alejandro Murguia, and then I will bring on editor Diane Frank and contributor and SF poet legend Dan Langton. Enjoy. One day I was crossing San Francisco from the south side to the north side, going through the Bayview, the Mission, south of Market, now the streets were all tore up, potholes big enough to swallow a car. Then once I crossed Market Street on the north side, all the streets were perfectly paved and sidewalks clean and the trees blooming. And that's when I realized I was living in Silicon City. They evicted Mia from her storefront on Valencia then they burned down the apartments on 22nd Street. The good die young, and isn't it a pity that the beat goes on in Silicon City? You're a stranger now in your hometown with strange faces on once familiar streets and strange shadows at four o'clock, and cops, strangers on a strange beat. And the days and nights are mostly gritty, but hey, it's okay. You're hanging in Silicon City. So I've been told that everything that rises must fall, and that the wicked shall be denied. But nowadays, you don't know who to trust. And watch out, you don't get run over by a Google bus. It's be that way, all down and dirty, in the heartless heart 
of Silicon City. Now, everybody knows the center cannot hold, but prophecy is cheap and politicians are tricky. So, baby, get your high heel sneakers and your black beret on, because tonight we take on the powers in Silicon City. Yes, indeed. That was a poem by Alejandro Merguia, a two-time winner of the American Book Award and the Sixth San Francisco Poet Laureate. He's a professor of Latina Latino Studies at San Francisco State University. His most recent book is Stray Poem, City Light Books. So before I bring on Diane and Dan, I want to tell you a bit about each of them. Diane Frank is author of eight books of poems, two novels, and a photo memoir of her 400-mile trek in the Nepal Himalayans. She's the editor of Fog and Light, San Francisco Through the Eyes of the Poets Who Live Here. Diane lives in San Francisco, where she plays cello in the Golden Gate Symphony and creates her life as an art form. More about Diane can be found at dianefrank.net. And Daniel J. Langton, was on the creative writing faculty at San Francisco State University when Diane was a graduate student. He was her faculty advisor and a very important mentor. He held a poetry salon in San Francisco in the Haight-Ashbury that was legendary, and to this day is loved by so many poets and renowned as an important mentor for a new generation of poets. In Daniel's words, my father's father and my father both published poetry in Ireland at a time when there were very few readers, let alone writers. My father gave up a rural heaven for the frightening hell of New York City so his sons and daughters would have a chance. They took that chance. What followed for me was 50 years of teaching, seven books, friendships with poets, San Francisco, the town poets live for, and a wife I could have not met otherwise. Here's a conversation we had late last month. So I've got Diane Frank and Daniel Langton here with me, and we're talking about the book Fog and Light. And I would like to start with Diane. What inspired you to do this book? Great question. Um, the San Francisco that tourists visit is not the San Francisco where the rest of us live. And that's why I decided to gather the poems for this book. And who better to ask than the poets for a better view of San Francisco? In this collection of poems, we show you the city that most tourists miss. Dancing the Samba at Carnival in the Mission District, the Golden Gate Bridge at dawn with the perfect angle of light, the timpani of Pacific waves in the outer sunset, that's my neighborhood, a cappuccino before work on Minna Alley, a walk through Bird and Beckett Bookstore in Glen Park, the dog path at Fort Funston, an inside view of the summer of love, the Alamany Farmer's Market, the Doggy Diner. It's our love letter to San Francisco. As the editor of this book, I feel like a curator of a gallery of fine art. And um, I came of age in San Francisco. I went to graduate school here, and it was the first place on the planet that felt like home. Dan Langton was my faculty advisor at San Francisco State, and he became a friend for life. And we have Daniel here. 
So, Daniel, what do you like best about San Francisco? You're one of the contributing poets, and we'll hear some of your poems also. What made you stay in San Francisco, and why do you love it? The only habitable place on the planet in the summertime. <laughs> Were you friends with Herb Cain? I, I was brought up in New York where it snowed half a year and was too hot half a year, and I came here as a soldier. I, I, I didn't pick it. It was picked for me. And I just couldn't believe how great it was. And also, uh, truthfully, uh, every poet I've talked to said a poet has to live in New Orleans, New York City, or San Francisco. It's constantly <laughs> stimulating. The city is constantly stimulating, like New Orleans, and it's, like New York. Right. The creativity is just everywhere and just overflowing. So how long have you lived in San Francisco? 71 like years. 71 years. 1950. You've really really seen the city change, haven't you? Yeah, it changed from a town to a city, and it was a bad change. Do you find yourself longing for the old San Francisco, or are you just leaned into what it is now? To tell you the truth, what I really miss is the old New York City. (laughs) 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 That's where I lived the first 20 years of my life, and... Uh, I think basically I'm a New Yorker. I think like a New Yorker. I live like a San Franciscan. I'm, I'm always helping people solve problems the way a New Yorker would solve them. Like, for instance, people during the garbage strike, they didn't know what to do with their garbage, so I told them what New Yorkers did. They wrapped it in fancy boxes and let the boxes get stolen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is smart. <laughs> That's great. I like that. So you used to have a poetry salon in your living room. Is that true? Yeah. Well, well uh, they're called what poets, what, no, I guess what novelists call it is because Henry James called it that. It was called At Home. Uh, when are you at home? Uh, meant uh, when can people drop in unannounced? And there were famous Friday ones. Uh, with Robert Stock and Saturday ones with Kenneth Rexroth. And I had a Tuesday one for years. And uh, I never I never advertised or anything, but it was always crowded. And so who were some of the other poets you showed up? <laughs> that reminds me of a story. Uh, Robert Lowell came, and we had, uh, I guess, about 16 people, as usual. And at the end of the evening... Lowell said, uh, we were saying goodnight, and he said, wait a minute, I haven't signed the guest book. And uh, I said, I don't have a guest book, and he absolutely chewed me out. (laughs) Yeah, because other poets had told him about the Tuesday nights, that's why he was there, and he just assumed. Turns out the other poets kept guest books. (laughs) (laughs) So did you start keeping one after that? Well, uh, no, I never did. No, he said whatever. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, if you picked up a a book in the 1960s called Current American Poets, two-thirds of them had been in my living room because of the free drinks. Yeah, poets like free drinks. Oh, you, you say bring your own and the <laughs> and attendance <laughs> falls off. <laughs> yeah, no one comes. <laughs> yeah, I find that as someone who has run reading series, the reading series is always better if people can get alcohol. 
I find that it's a much more lively, interesting combination of people and experiences that that lack of inhibition definitely lends itself to poetry. (laughs) Well, Dylan Thomas was here once and he said, not to me, but to the crowd, uh, I really, I try hard, but I can't trust somebody who doesn't drink. <laughs> oh dear! That's but I don't. Wonderful. I don't think I knew. I don't think I knew anyone who doesn't drink. <laughs> Just my little experiences since the late '80s in North Beach with the poets. You know, I was there a couple different times, and then I've continued to come back. And it is such a vibrant poetry world. There are so many incredible poets who were drawn to the Bay Area, just drawn to San Francisco, and then coming into North Beach. The reading series is there. I mean, I, you, you ran a series for a little while in one of those spots, and there was a few different poets that really tried, I don't want to even say tried, they kept alive that outlaw spirit, which is very much part of the poetry world that you came from. And they were very, and they were, well, first of all, I should say this, there are a lot of poets who came here for two weeks and never left. Uh, but one of the things, especially people like Allen Ginsberg, if you tried to get him to do something for himself in poetry, you know, publicity or something, he would immediately say no and give you the name of a struggling poet. And then the struggling poet would give you a name of a worse struggling poet. They really, uh, I'm going to give you a quote from the, William Carlos Williams said to me, he said, poets are just like other people, except when they're good people, and then they're the best people you will ever meet. Oh. And, that has, and that has been true in my lifetime. Oh, what a beautiful thing. I've never heard that. That is an incredible thing to say, and I think that is so true. One of my friends, uh, Ronald Sauer, was asked, they, Berlinghetti wanted to publish him multiple times, and he kept saying no. <laughs> it's that same idea. He's like, I don't want to be published. You know, it's like, I just want to write, which I thought was a very interesting idea. So you were friends with William Carlos Williams? Uh, yes, he got me into poetry. I was a novelist, and he was a novelist, and that's how we hooked up. But I was a failed novelist, and so I shyly so- showed him a poem. And he went back to New Jersey, and six months later, I got a letter saying, I've been sick. I just now read your poem. I want you to quit whatever you're doing and do nothing but write poetry for the rest of your life. Oh, wow. And he got got me published, which didn't hurt. Wow, what a beautiful story. And then you stayed friends for the rest of your lives? Well, it was just a fluke. I was born in Patterson, New Jersey, but I wasn't from Patterson. I was actually... My mother was actually taken off a train to New York because she was in labor. So I, so I was born in a place I've never seen. <laughs> and that's where he's from. Uh, well, he wrote a book called Patterson. That's how I got to know him. But he, he was also one of the good people. The last time we wrote quite regularly, and then I got a letter from his wife, Lassie, and she said, you've made it. Now he's going to find another struggling poet. (laughs) 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 And the struggling poet he found was Ginsburg, who was born in Patterson, New Jersey. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) I didn't know that you had that in common. 
Uh, oh, that's that's how we hit it off when when we were here. We were we were very different poets, but very alike as people. I want to take a quick moment to remind you that you're listening to Be More Now, and this is Blake Moore. And right now, I'm speaking with Daniel J. Langton, San Francisco poet legend, and we're talking about the new book Fog and Light, edited by Diane Frank. You've been a professor of poetry correct? Oh, 50 years. And you're part of the same San Francisco State, which is quite well known as a poetry mecca. I know um, Poets in the School started through San Francisco State. You've been on the creative writing faculty there for decades and decades, correct? Well, yeah. Actually, when, when I was hired, it was as an English teacher because they, they started the creative writing department Oh, I think my second or third year there. So uh, I was really one of the first aboard. And one true story, which you don't have to use, but we turned down two sisters, two girls, and they were in tears. That They tried to get me to help them invent it, and I couldn't budge anybody. So they reluctantly accepted their second choice, Harvard. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh yeah, po- poets want poets want to be around poets. Uh, yeah, they do. Uh, I, I've had students say to me, "I can't believe uh, I'm sitting in a room with people, and every one of them cares about poetry." <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> right when you, and you when you say to someone, "Hey, can I read you this poem?" They don't groan. They just say, "Yes." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great. Oh, I was so I did everything you. for a long time. I was married for seventy years. And how did you meet Diane? Uh, my student. So she was your student? Student and also. Uh, if you had a, the way poetry worked, if, if you had a student, you were her mentor, you were her faculty advisor. And one of the things that uh, Diane was wondering about, not poets pretty well know what, how good they are, but she wanted to know something, and I, and I brought it up. And uh, she said, uh, you, you read my poetry now. Am I going to grow? And I said, that's all you're going to do. <laughs> and I Beautiful. told her she'd be, a great old, she'd be a great old poet. And she still will be. <laughs> that's the goal. <laughs> Diane, oh, yeah. what do you think of that? <laughs> well, um, it's, it's just really inspiring to hear what Dan felt about my writing back then. And he's just been with me for the whole journey. I remember being a graduate student and we would just inhale poetry. We would read books to try to figure out the mysterious code like any book. I remember um, I read W.S. Merwin to figure out line breaks. I mean, just the way he sets up his line taught me where a poem needs to breathe. When I met him years later at the Des Moines Poetry Festival when I was living in Iowa, I gave him a copy of my book, which he actually wanted, and thanked him. And, you know, we used to go to poetry readings, you know, as many as we could. It was like... um, our whole lives centered around poetry at that time, and that's never changed for me. Mm. But, but, oh, right. by the way, Di- Diane, now that I have you, I've got a two-inch yeah. 
I've got a two-inch thick file at home of Diane Frank's poems and letters if you want to see it. I would. What, oh, yeah. what an amazing <laughs> gift. Next time we know we're going to be together, you bet. There's a lot of poems in there that you you may have mislaid. Who knows? Probably because my new and selected poems, uh, the title is While Listening to the Enigma Variations, is was just published. I'm doing the launch on Thursday. And I found some poems that was like as I was looking through my files and it was like, why didn't I ever publish that? So after the news, after the news section, I put in poems that um, in the appropriate places that for some reason I hadn't published. And sometimes I revise them because I write better now than I did back then in most cases. So, and some of the poems didn't say what I wanted, would want to say now. So I made them true for me now. And there were certain cases where the language wasn't up to the level of what I feel now and what I can do now. So I gave myself the permission to revise them. I know that you know Tom Santolella, a mutual friend. There's a poem about that I wrote for him in the second section of the book. And when I showed it to him, we of course, we met at a cafe on um, Grand Street in North Beach. I mean, where else to have lunch? And I showed Tom the poem, and by the time he got done reading, he had tears in his eyes. It just Aww. really said what I wanted it to say, and it said what he needed it to say. That's so beautiful. So let's talk about some more about Fog and Light, <laughs> and that this book came out during the pandemic, and you ended up with the book on the bestseller list for poetry about places as well as for anthologies. And how did you get that much attention without doing the normal readings? It was so interesting. Blue Light Press, along with being a publisher, is a community. When I realized we needed to launch the book during the pandemic, a time when we couldn't go to bookstores and do group readings, I asked for help. My initial plan was to do group readings at every bookstore in San Francisco, but it had to be virtual. So I set up a book launch date and asked the Fog and Light poets to reach out to everyone they know. And um, most of the poets in the book reached out to their communities. On the first day it became available, we were on the bestseller list. By the second day, we were number one in poetry about places and number one best-selling anthology. It's been on the bestseller list for more than 10 weeks. Just the, all sorts of doors have opened, and it was because everyone did it. During the next two weeks, poets took fog and light to all of their favorite bookstores. They got their copy, and you've seen the cover with that amazing photograph mm -hmm. of the Golden Gate Bridge by Jeffrey Bartfeld. You see the book, and you want to pick it up. Catherine Harrer and Kathy Evans, um, the, they are poets in the book, they took the book to every bookstore in Marin County. And other poets did similar things. As a result, we're in most of the major bookstores in San Francisco, Marin County, and the East Bay. And one person can't do all of this. It was all of us working together. And how many poets are part of the book? There are 62 poets in the book. How many years did you work on this project? Oh, Probably three. Um, mm -hmm. I, have a, I have a mentor in the area of publishing, Mike Larson, who 
He's a retired literary agent. He started the San Francisco Writers Conference. Well, he was having coffee. I was having chai at Madness. And he, he pitched the idea to me. He said, you know, there's a book that should be written, and no one's done it yet. And he talked about a book about San Francisco written by the poets. And yeah. I immediately, I just loved the idea, and immediately I knew I was going to do it. And then we walked into Books, Inc. on Van Ness, and he just showed me a table by the door, and he said, that's where your book is going to be. <laughs> I did a different book than, um, than he imagined because, you know, he's older, and he was kind of, you know, he's part of the beat generation of poets. And, you know, we, we have um, Dan Langton, we have um, Jack Hirschman, but I'm, I'm like a different generation, and I reached out to the poets that I know and I love, mm-hmm. and, and we just gathered the poems. And, you know, putting poems in a book is sort of like dating. You, you kind of know who belongs with you and who doesn't. Yeah, and I would just totally. read books and say, yes, this one, this one. And, and my standards of poetry for what I would want to put in a book for my own poems or anybody else, it's like, I love every poem. I love every line of every poem. Every line delivers. And that's the kind of poetry that's in this book. And I probably know about a third of the poets that are in the book. We travel in similar poetry circles. So, and I love some of these poets. I'm just, so I'm super excited to get turned on to new poets that I don't know. I also got turned on to different poets in that I didn't know because Ellen Bass found out about it Uh and sent it out to her group and a couple of other people did that. So I started hearing from some poets that I hadn't read before and became smitten with their work. And we've done a lot of readings, so I've gotten to meet the poets. And whenever we do a reading, of course, it's all virtual, it's all on Zoom, or in your case on radio, but when I hear the poems in the poets' voices, the book becomes alive uh, for me. Absolutely. On a whole deeper level. Especially a poet that knows how to read. To hear tones and the emotions of the poet who's writing live, it, there's nothing like it. That's why I like going to poetry readings. That's why I like being with poets so I can hear it in their words. I enjoy reading poetry, don't get me wrong, but if I had to pick, I would much rather listen to poetry than read it. Oh, me too. Like sometimes when people are at a reading and they have the book, they'll want to know what page the poem is on and read along with it. I'm, I'm just the opposite. I just want to listen. I want to soak it in. So I, I assume you were the curator. So you were the main editor who selected the poems or did you work with somebody else? No, I, I'm the editor. I, I, I selected the poems. This is one that mm-hmm. I chose by myself. We're doing a second anthology that's going to come out in the fall, um, which is Pandemic Puzzle Poems. And that one I did with Prato Sereno because I wanted to combine communities and reach out to a larger group. And that's been a really interesting thing. But, you know, I just, by my, on my own, I let the poems come in and I said yes to the poems that I love. Yes, by the way, is my favorite word in the English language. <laughs> and, and, and for me, being a publisher feels like having a magic power. If I love a book, I can bring it into being. 
And I also know that getting published changes people's lives, and I love doing that for poets I love and respect. Wonderful. And Partha's a friend of mine also. So what was the hardest part about doing a book like this? Proofreading. Um, When you have 62 poets and you have to get them to proofread, it's kind of like herding cats. This book, I know this is my second anthology. The first one is River of Earth and Sky, Poems for the 21st Century. And the proofreading of that was so hard with a few poets. You know, they wanted to give like six-page explanations of why they wanted to make a particular change, and I was ready to scream. Um, we, I kind of learned from that, so it wasn't so hard. And um, all of the poets, except for one, actually proofread within the deadline and sent the changes in an easy form to read. You know, it's like, after the other book, I thought I would never want to do another anthology in my life, even though I just adore that book. But this this one was kind of a smooth process, and, and the launch during the pandemic was beyond smooth. Oh, by the way, there's something I wanted to mention just because um, Dan was talking about William Carlos Williams launching him, which is such an amazing story. Yeah. The person who launched me as a poet was Stephen Dunn. Um, who went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. We just lost him about two weeks ago, and he also remained a friend for life. When I was 19 years old at Syracuse University, an undergraduate, um, I took my first poetry workshop with Stephen Dunn, and it was the first poetry workshop that he taught. We had this amazing connection. I became a protege, and... Stephen, he just, um, he loved my poetry. He sent it out for publication. Um, He submitted it to an all-university contest, and I won the award, you know, 19 years old. And Stephen and I also remain friends for life. And after studying with Stephen Major, after studying with Stephen Dunn, I changed my major to creative writing. It was called English Composition at that time. So I I had a launch by a, a great soul in poetry. Mm. What a gift. That's beautiful. We're running out of time, and I want to make sure I have enough time for all the poems. We're going to be sharing a lot of different poets that are part of this book are going to be reading their poems. So we're going to hear some of the poems in the voices of the poets that are included. Did you pick a cross-section of some of the contributors? What I did was I thought of poems that I thought would be a really good addition to this book. Also, since we're doing a lot of readings, I put a couple of people in who have great poems and hadn't read yet because this is a community. I want everyone involved. And um, I just, they were just poems I wanted to share, poets and poems. And what would you like anyone who's listening to come away from this interview with, something that you want them to remember? What, what I want them to remember is that this book is a love letter. I've lived in San Francisco for most of my adult life. I love this city. I have so many memories here. This book is my Valentine to San Francisco, and it's a love letter from all of the poets in the book. Beautiful. Very, very well said. I've read a couple of the poems of some of my poets' friends that are part of the book, and I just love it. It is truly a love letter to San Francisco. How would people find it? 
Well, it's in just about every bookstore in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's distributed by Ingram. So if people are listening to your show from other places, they can just ask their bookstore to order it. And it's also on Amazon if that's easier. I really hope that we stay in touch. I love that you're a poet. If people look on the Blue Light Press website, they'll see a link to order the book. It's bluelightpress.com. So I so appreciate your doing this. Yeah, you bet. I'm so I'm always so happy to support poets and the world needs poetry. Poetry is our emotional language. It's one of the few ways that we have left to actually convey that depth of what I call soul. You can call it whatever you want, but that type of expression that you have to find a way to say it with pictures because the words themselves won't suffice. You can't, you have to show, not tell, right? And the poets that you picked are just some of my favorite San Francisco poets. It's such a pleasure to have this opportunity to share their work and share your work and let people know about this amazing love letter to San Francisco. So thank you. You're welcome. I feel, just as you do, that poetry is the language of the soul. And in poetry, you can just say things and express things that you can't express any other way. It's just such a pleasure to, that you've done this, Diane, to make your acquaintance. And thank you so much for sharing all these poets and hurting the cat. Yay. Beautiful. Yay. <laughs> and that was Diane Frank, editor of Fog and Light. And earlier I was also speaking with Daniel Langton. I'm going to start off with a few poems from the book. And some of the poets are introducing themselves. Some are not. I'll start with a couple poems by Diane Frank and also by Daniel Langton. Along with being a poet, I play cello in the Golden Gate Symphony. A few years ago, our conductor scheduled us to play Mahler's Second Symphony at the Herbst Theater on Beta Breaker Sunday. It's a crazy race, everyone in costume. The only way to get there from the outer sunset was to take our cellos on the N. Judah streetcar. Mahler on race day begins with an epigraph by Gustav Mahler. I shall soar upwards to the light where no eye has penetrated. In concert black, we carry two cellos to the N. Judah streetcar on Beta Breaker Sunday to play Mahler's second symphony. We take seats in the front of the train next to a unicorn, a dragonfly, runners in rainbow tutus, and a caveman with a leopard Santa Claus hat. Eric's tuxedo, bow tie, and hot pink cummerbund, well, everybody's in costume. We sit across from a furry gray cat and an angel with a red, white, and blue halo. To my left, a couple holding hands and wearing the medals they got when they crossed the finish line. She's dressed like a bumblebee, fuzzy antennas waving from her headband. He carries a bouquet of larger-than-life sunflowers. More people board the streetcar, a three-eyed alien, a troll with pink hair, human-sized mice and bunnies a leopard with a fanny pack and a six-pack, a woman who flew in from Boston 
tells me the Beta Breakers is her 73rd birthday party. We invite her to the Mahler concert. She started piano lessons at age 66. No mother to tell her the piano won't fit in her house. A family of bumblebees climbs into the streetcar with black antennas and black tutus. One of them tells me the wings helped her up the Hayes Street Hill. Standing in the aisle, butterfly hats, butterfly wings, butterflies. A cello isn't out of place in this crowd. I invite a butterfly to the concert, but she prefers early music. I tell her we played Beethoven's Ninth Symphony last year. Beethoven? That's hardly early music. A bear in a fuzzy costume says that Mahler is so much better than the new music concert he heard last weekend. Sirens and pots and pans. The rainbow caterpillar agrees. Mahler has melody, chord structure, immaculate timing, and thundering beauty. Entering the streetcar, metallic space cylinder, svelte runner in orange neon shorts, and rainbow snake earrings. Beta breakers, 7.46 miles, a marathon up and down San Francisco hills from the Bay Bridge to the Pacific Ocean. Mahler, quite a workout, 27 pages in the cello part. Allegro Maestoso at the starting gate. My teacher's advice at the downbeat, play as fast as you can, keep running. At Van Ness Station, exit the streetcar, up the stairs, down the street, cross the race at Hayes. Traffic signals help as we weave two cellos between the tutus. A few minutes before the call, we find the side door to the Herbst Theater and a friend who plays French horn for the San Francisco Ballet. Bill says, Mahler's Second Symphony at the Herbst Theater? Good for you, but is the building large enough to hold that piece? Curtain, conductor, start. It's under my fingers, and I keep intense focus as I play. Waves of beauty and mystery, the soprano soloist was one of the sent-down children during the Cultural Revolution in China. She sang to keep herself sane, then emigrated across the Pacific to study opera. The mezzo, a southern belle with honey voice and tango flowers in her hair, would do herself honors at Mardi Gras. It's a hauntingly beautiful and mystical piece from the opening run to our standing ovation. After the applause, after we really did this thing, in the aura of post-concert afterglow, time to take cellos back to the outer sunset. On the streetcar, we sit inside a hive of bumblebees. A butterfly takes our photograph, tuxedo in concert black, holding cellos. For the next week, Mahler, a fat moon, and rainbow tutus in my I wrote this poem. It's called The Crackling Hills. After watching the forest fires 
in Northern California on television and the fear I felt from Muir Woods, which is my cathedral, the crackling hills. The fires begin to head for the shore where creatures are diving in waves to someplace else for a while, anything to avoid the surrogate for the sun. The sea sends fog to smooth the tattered grass and tender mirth modesty to the leafless trees. Then it calls on rain, a part of itself, to blanket the ground and what is still there. Even the splendid can be ruined. The woods we crave can take on lightning and erupt and send small suns across its lurid slopes until they find water's rippling ceiling and then those firebrands become lemmings coming down from air and then dying down. As the winds calm, the wounded eat the still. Acorns are sunning. The earth settles down. Hello, this is Gail Newman, and I'm reading Where I Live. The one-armed white man with dreadlocks scouts the traffic below the 101 underpass for spare change. His face is an abandoned building, his body a burned-out battlefield. His broken shoes slap the asphalt as he navigates the fenders and rearview mirrors. Even a smile will help, his sign reads. We roll up our windows. The car ahead moves on and we rush to step on the gas. Later at home, roses bloom in the window. The table is set with silver. The food is ready. We slice the bread, eat. Hello, my name is Angie Minkin and I'm going to be reading my poem, Ode to Luca Ravioli. I'm very grateful to Diane Frank for including this poem in her fantastic anthology, Fog and Light. And I'm very sad, actually, that Luca Ravioli is no longer in existence. And you'll hear a little bit about that in my poem. Ode to Luca Ravioli. My kids grew up at Luca Ravioli, that quintessential deli in San Francisco's mission. Beautiful Italian men tended to them carefully. They toddled there on fat legs, hair all blowy, sat on counters, drooled at stunning food compositions. My kids grew up full at Luca Ravioli. So many dinners of pasta and sauce for our family, pancetta, prosciutto, parmigiano, Beautiful Italian men fed us all so carefully. 94 years on the same corner, the place is almost holy. No useless shops then, no tech bros making acquisitions. My kids grew up innocent at Luca Ravioli. 94 years over and gone, that holy ground will be wholly disturbed. Overpriced condos, $12 juices, SF's new religion. Those beautiful Italian men left us bereft 
carefully sent packing. Lucas closed today. It filled slowly with distraught locals. No one had asked our permission. My kids grew up loving and happy at Luca Ravioli. Beautiful Italian men tended to them so carefully. Hello, this is Catherine Santana Goldman. As a native San Franciscan, I am delighted to be included in the publication of Fog and Light. I'm going to be reading a short story that I wrote about growing up in this fabulous city, the Colby Street Slalom Skiers. The Colby Street Slalom Skiers. When I was eight, we lived on a cloud-kissing hill in San Francisco that descended into a bustling T intersection. Using this backdrop for their reasoning, my parents told me I would not be getting a bike for my birthday because it was unsafe to ride on the streets near our house. As visions of a cherry red Schwinn faded into the tangled traffic at the end of our block, I invented a remedy to my disappointment. Organizing a group of my fellow bikeless friends, we hiked up to the top of our street. Each of us carried a metal roller skate. Looking down over our urban vista, we discussed potential courses, velocity, and escape routes. Then we began our construction. Opening our skates to their longest length, each one of us carefully positioned a flat board six inches wide and 18 inches long across our own expanded skate and firmly wedged it between the toe and heel clips. Everything was secured in place by tightening the wing nut on the underside of the thin metal skate. The finished products looked like a short arm cross with wheels. Sitting dead center on our boards, with our legs stretched straight out in front of us, we leaned into the power of gravity and surrendered to the steep slope using only our hands on the edges of the board to steer. Like Olympic slalom skiers, we glided over the sidewalk, weaving in and out of driveways, navigating the concrete and asphalt moguls with charmed agility. The true test of our skill was making the sharp left-hand turn into Mr. Gimignani's bushes on the corner to avoid being catapulted into the heavy cross traffic at the bottom of the hill. After learning our bruises, we all mastered the art of flying in the face of fear. I can't say the same for Mr. Gimignani's bushes. Epilogue. I never owned a bike, but as an adult... My name is Marianne Betterly. I am a poet, philosopher, photographer, dreamer. I write about synchronicity and spirits, flashbacks, and the streets of Tokyo and San Francisco. My poems can be found in numerous journals and collections such as The Widow's Handbook, River of Earth and Sky, Poems for the 21st Century, and New Sun Rising, Stories for Japan, to name a few. In addition, I have written a full-length poetry book entitled The Return of the Bees. I've always loved San Francisco. 
from my first visit years ago when I wandered past the head shops on Haight Street to the lush gardens of Golden Gate Park. I fell so deeply for the city that I transferred to UC Berkeley so I could keep exploring San Francisco and the wild west coast. And to this day, whenever I see Coit Tower peeking above the fog, I still get a thrill. I will now read the plein air toilette of Madame X about a woman I used to pass every day on my way to work. The plein air toilette of Madame X. A black swan surrounded by down, she emerges from a cocoon of sleep. Awakened by the hum and churn of cement trucks, the swish of cranes, red steel stretching to the sky. She reaches up to cup the first ray of sun. Holding a compact mirror, she paints her lashes thicker than Katy Perry's, stroking them as the mist rises off sidewalks at Mission and First. Office workers clip and zip past without a glance at her open-air boudoir. Today her nightcap is red, matching the lipstick she draws on cool, chapped lips. She rarely glances out her private dome while preparing for the day. I pick up a cappuccino down Minna Alley, pass her again, this time on her cell phone, maybe ordering breakfast or barking buys on Wall Street from her street front office. Her cube wall is made of cardboard that she folds each morning like sheets, piles in a neat stack under the no parking sign before stuffing her bedding into carry-on luggage. Every morning she awakens on cold cement, sprinkled with feathers, pizza boxes, a few cigarette butts. I wonder what she would do if she got the flu. Some days she feeds pigeons in front of Walgreens or across the street against the barbed wire fence lot and Portico's Pizza, discussing Plato or dogs with the bearded man inside a garbage bag bed. Yesterday I got to work late, past a well-dressed woman with familiar luggage sitting on a bench near the glass doors to my office tower. I looked at her twice. Did we take the same painting class at Berkeley or share a flight from Taipei? Madame X was waiting in blue hat, couture suit, painted lashes, ready for someone to take her away. The next morning, her spot was empty, but for a few pigeons pecking at high-rise dust. I never saw her again. Next I'll read Fog in Kensington. No waterfall of fog ever tumbles into the bay from the East Bay Hills and Tilden Park. The fog comes from the sea climbs over the seven San Francisco hills 
through the golden gate in a soft white river, flows onto El Cerrito, Kensington. Its fingers crawl upwards from the flatlands to claw its way uphill, wrapping lamp posts, bungalows, backyard redwoods in a cool white shroud. But a few mornings a year, the fog rises only as high as the Arlington, while Albany below remains covered under heavy mist. The dawn warms the summit above a sea of clouds, extends across the western horizon. I sip the sunrise, Tibetan god realm view. Instead of train whistle, automobile roar, all I hear is the coo of a morning dove, a crow call, and the occasional click of a circadian clock. We have several poems in this book about earthquakes. It's part of living in San Francisco. This is mine. Earthquake, 5 a.m. Tamblor wakes me with a kiss. On the other side of the wall, a whirring of water. I open thin blinds to calla lilies, belladonna, the garden of early morning light. After the earthquake, the neighborhood dogs howl, then a silence that wraps the morning. So this last uh, poem, the second poem in the anthology Fog and Light, is uh, about a particular part of my neighborhood. And it starts off by uh, introducing uh, three poets, writers that lived in that neighborhood. And uh, in particular, it, it mentions Oscar Seta Acosta, who wrote one of the great novels of United States literature, The Revolt of the Cockroach People. And he wrote it in the Hotel Royan, the mission's finest. And if you don't know where the mission district is located, I cannot help you. 16th in Valencia. I saw Jack Michelin on the corner of 16th and Valencia reciting skinny dynamite, and he was angry. And the next day he was dead on the last BART train to Concord and maybe that's why he was angry. And I met Harold Norse shuffling around in a beaten world, his pockets stuffed with poems only hipsters read. It's a cesspool out here, he sighed before returning to his room in the Albion Hotel where angels honeycomb the walls with dreams and the rent is paid with angry poems. And I heard Oscar Seta Acosta's brown buffalo footsteps pounding the Valencia corridor and he was shouting poetry at the sick junkies nodding with their wasted whores in the lobby of the Hotel Royale the mission's finest, and even the furniture was angry. 
And I joined the waiters at the bus stop, the waitresses, the Norteño trios, the flower sellers, the blind guitarists waving boleros at a purple sky, the shirtless, vagrant, vagabond, ranting at a parking meter, the spray paint visionary setting fire to the word. And I knew this was the last call. We were tired of living from the scraps of others. We were tired of dying for our own chunk of nothing. And I saw this barrio as a freight train, a crazy Mexican bus careening out of control, a mutiny aboard a battleship, and every porthole filled with anger. And we were going to stay angry, and we were not leaving, not ever leaving. El corazón del corazón de la misión. El camino real ends here, baby. Ah, the perfect poet in that with, again, that last poem was the voice of Alejandro Murguia. And before that, of course, was Diane Frank doing Earthquake 5 a.m. So we've been talking about the book Fog and Light, San Francisco Through the Eyes of the Poets Who Live Here. I'm your host, Blake Moore. You've been listening to Be More Now right here on KZYX. And there's been a number of poets that have spoken, and that includes Angie Minkin, Catherine Goldman, Dan Langton, Marianne Betterly. So thanks so much for listening. I want you to stay tuned for The Treehouse, which is coming up next. And also tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., you're going to catch Politics, a Love Story. And this week, host Bob Bujanski will be talking with Peter T. Coleman, professor of psychology and education at Columbia University, whose latest book is called The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. They'll talk about how to speak with people whose ideas you abhor and how to diffuse tense political disagreements. I think we need a lot of that right now. Okay, everyone. Keep on loving each other. Say hi, smile, and find the good because that's what we have to do. Let's unify, people. Unify. Thanks so much. Thank you, Casey Wax. Lots of love to y'all. Everything you play for me.